It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. This is not the sound of a stream running through the mountains. It's water from a leaking pipe trickling down a stairway. That's not a frog splashing into a lake. It's a piece of sheetrock falling into a puddle on a kitchen floor. And that's not a hiker taking a deep breath of mountain air. It's a homeowner gasping at the sight of a $12,000 water damage repair bill. 40% of homeowners have experienced water damage. Protect your home with the Moen Smart Water Monitor and Shutoff. Moen. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Accenture overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome to the BBC Country Farm Magazine podcast with me, Fergus Collins. In this episode, we talk to Welsh farmer Daffith Morris-Jones about rewilding. As most of you all know, rewilding is a relatively recently coined term used to describe landscape-scale conservation projects that take place over thousands of hectares, and the aim is to restore entire ecosystems and even reintroduce lost species. It also tends to mean less human impact in these places. There are famous rewilding schemes in Ennerdale in the Lake District, the Nepa State in Sussex and in the Cairngorms in Scotland, but a new scheme has been proposed in the Cambrian Mountains in West Wales. Called Summit to Sea, its stated aim is to restore the wildlife of the uplands there and bring economic regeneration to the region. Daffith is one of the farmers living and working in that region, and he's very sceptical about the plan. So I'm, I'm speaking to Daffith Morris-Jones, a farmer from West Wales. Uh, I met Daffith recently at a uh, rewilding conference in Cardiff, and he had some very interesting pertinent views on rewilding in his area. Before we get to that, Daffith, could you just give us a bit of, t- tell the listeners a bit about where you live? Describe your setting. Okay, yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm a hill farmer from mid-Wales. We're right in the middle of Wales, about 12 miles in from the coast, um, in an area of, of uplands, which is in the Cambrian Mountains. It's the Elenis in Welsh, about seven miles away from the peak of Pimlimon, which is a, the tallest mountain in mid-Wales. Um, it, it's quite a sort of um, typical heather upland, really, leading down then to, to some deep river gorges. It's really beautiful. Um, we were the, the last bastion of red kites, or at least one of them in the UK, um, 
We're quite close to some really stunning nature reserves. And then we've got some vast, vast Forestry Commission commercial plantations out at the back of the farm. Um, it's a predominantly Welsh-speaking area uh, and upland agriculture really sort of maintains and and um, and gives life to that to that Welsh-speaking culture, which right. relies heavily on it, you know. And that's the, the, the big point that we're going to be talking about, isn't it? But um, and, and it's mainly sheep farming you do, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, our, our farm's entirely sheep farming. Uh, we did have a small herd of cows, um, as most upland farms did, actually, up until the, the, the results of the BSE crisis really started hitting home in the late 90s and early noughties. Um, because the way that we then started dealing with uh, slaughtering and moving livestock uh, around as a result of that BSE crisis really impacted hill beef far more than it did lowland beef. Um, so at that point, we, we had to get rid of our herd of cows um, and we, we've concentrated solely on sheep since then, yeah. So that's interesting. There's been a change of, sort of personnel up there from, from a more mixed livestock to more, to, to, to more sheep in your area. Would you say, is that, is that typical of the Cambrians? Um, I, I think, I wouldn't say it's been to more sheep. I think over the same period, what we've seen is a decline in grazing numbers of sheep as well in this particular right. area. Um, I think there was a removal of a certain type of livestock and then nothing replaced it. I see. I that see. would be more accurate, yeah. Okay, I get you. Um, so we, we, we met at a rewilding conference. Um, rewilding is obviously a, a, a sort of an answer that conservationists have found to declines in wildlife, which is is sort of puts aside the, or not, or involves nature reserves, but it's a much bigger landscape scale project. Um, so, and, and you had some interesting things to say, but what sort of rewilding projects are proposed in your area? Is there something that, and, and you know, how would they impact on you? Um, yeah, well, there are quite a few projects which I suppose could broadly be called rewilding, but the biggest of these, and, and I suppose the, the most impressive, if you like, rewilding, um, is what's now being deemed Rewilding Britain's flagship rewilding project called Summit to Sea. Uh, which is a large landscape-scale rewilding project intending to cover 10,000 acres of land from the summit of Timlimon uh, right down to the sea out between Aberystwyth and, and Aberdovey. Um, so we've got everything from there to what in many ways could actually be viewed as, as conservation rebranded using the, the rewilding term to sort of excite uh, a new interest in things that have been happening for a long time, small-scale species reintroductions, um, conservation of nature reserves and those sorts of things that in reality are very much in line with, with what's already happening. I see. So it's, it's, it, it, from where you see it, it's putting a label on, on existing practices in the area. Um, it's partially that, but then I think the new drive now, especially for this, this landscape scale rewilding, uh, is something that we've never, ever seen before. Um, I think we're, we're, that particular side of things is moving away from sort of more traditional conservation and more careful data-driven conservation in small areas than expanding it, uh, and more towards really an idealistically driven view of, of what landscape and what the uplands is for and what it provides for people um, and, and what it'll look like on a far larger scale, really. And how does this affect you, or how, how, do, you, how do you perceive it affecting you as a, as a farmer who makes his living from the land there? Um, to be entirely honest, not particularly positively. Um, okay. I've, I've, um, no, I've, I've got deep, deep reservations about, about it, both in concept and in practice. Um, I think as somebody who, who makes a living off the land, but also lives very closely with, with that interaction with the land, I think that it, it risks sort of on the, on the wider conceptual basis, I think it risks changing our relationship with the land irrevocably. I think it risks making us sort of passive participants in landscape, spectators 
of landscape and of this created nature within the landscape rather than participants which are actively actively involved, which have agency within the landscape and which sort of are affected by changes in the landscape on a very personal and financial level, you know? So, so, um, so, so it's like you're saying that rewilding is going to take people away from the land and it's going to be, so wildlife comes first and the people who make their living off the land perhaps come second, is that... Yeah, but I think I think it goes even further than that because I don't think necessarily it's about wildlife coming first. I think it's about a very specific vision of wildlife coming first. Um, it's not about the sort of nature that, that I think everyone feels we, we've noticed the lack of um, biodiversity displayed in the State of Nature report, for example, and, and declines in species, um, which is going to be inevitable if you start reducing agriculture because those species that are reliant on grazing agriculture will decline if you take grazing out. Um, so what we've seen in the uplands over the last 20 years is a reduction in grazing animals, um, which means that you're going to see declines. And I think that that's another sort of nature, that, that sort of codependent nature that's evolved with agriculture over, over millennia now, over a fair few thousand years, is something that we're all mourning the loss of. Um, and I think that what we risk with rewilding is of almost fetishising a very specific form of, of, sort of wild and in inverted commas nature and of placing that at the top and placing other natures below it and then people below that again. Do the rewilders want to take more sheep off the land? I think if you listen to the wider rewilding discourse, they'd like to see the end of upland sheep farming altogether and the, 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 the creation of, of, I think, what a lot of people have called Pleistocene Park um, in, in upland areas of the UK. So I think from its more extreme end, yeah, they, there is a drive to, to drive agricultural practice out of the uplands. Um, in, in practice, in terms of the projects themselves, they've been a little more vague on that, uh, using the language of choice. Um, but in reality, I think that if you have very substantial projects with a lot of financial might lying behind them, a lot of lobbying power behind that, not too much data supporting their point of view, but a very persuasive narrative, um, I think in the end you can bring financial pressure to bear in the way that you buy land in the way that you reduce agricultural productivity in the area to a point at which you begin losing purchasing competition. People coming to buy your sheep, there'll be less of them coming to each market, which will drive the prices in that market down. Um, so I think there are far subtler ways that rewilding can drive agriculture out of an area without having to say it overtly. Well, it was very interesting at the conference where uh, that point you just made about the commercial impact and the viability impact has uh, a, a wider cultural issue for Welsh culture and Welsh language. Would you like to sort of expand on that? Because I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, um, I think it's something that's it's very difficult to understand if you don't live in or have experience of sort of the, the, the Welsh-speaking agricultural sector. The agricultural sector in Wales has a higher proportion of Welsh speakers within it than any other industry. Um, so it supports a Welsh-speaking economy supports a Welsh-speaking multiplier as well, which means because you've got all these family businesses that all speak Welsh as their first language, it incentivizes other businesses that, that rely on them to also speak Welsh, you know, vets, feed suppliers, accountants, solicitors, labourers, mechanics. Anyone you can imagine having an interaction with the agricultural sector has a financial incentive to employ Welsh-speaking staff or to be Welsh-speaking themselves. Um, and if you remove agriculture from that and replace it with industries that are more service driven, um, replace it with potentially tourism, which is very much a, a, an English facing 
industry, uh, you're going to do nothing but erode the one economy that gives the Welsh language a financial, in, well, a financial driver to exist. And I think it really risks then driving the Welsh language into more of an academic pursuit, one that you learn at school, but you've got no workplace to practice it, which, which will lead to decline. You know, it stops being a living language at that stage. I think that agriculture as well has, has quite a close place in, in the Welsh image of, of ourselves in many ways. You know, that, that sort of self-image of, of the Welsh upland farm, the fact that the Welsh population on the whole is closer to agriculture than the population is in England, for example. Um, there are more people with familial ties to, to farming. There are more people who view farming as being the, the lifeblood of the Welsh language and culture. It's a far more rural country in many ways. You know, we haven't really got that much urbanity in Wales. There's a, a bit down the south and a bit up the north. But the vast chunk of the middle of Wales is, is agricultural. And I think that there's a, there's a wider cultural issue that goes beyond language as well, whereby when you've got a country in which land ownership hasn't always been in the hands of those that, that actively farm the land or that have interaction with the land, I think that our sense of ownership and our sense of self is based on the fact that we have a long-standing interaction with it, that we've left our mark, that we've built walls, that we've farmed it, that we've developed breeds, and that we've, we've, we've left a stamp on it over centuries. And it's a very different sense of ownership, but of cultural ownership, uh, that comes about as a result of active interaction in the landscape, you know? That's a very deep root there. It's almost like a native species in your own right, as it were, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, in many ways, yeah. I, I think... Uh, that's what I'd be looking for, is um, you're looking at that balance between the human within nature in this context, in mid-Wales, rather than setting aside somewhere for nature and your definition of nature basically being anything that isn't human. I see. I, see. Um, I think the human's as much a natural player in, in mid-Wales as any amount of, of anything you'd want to call wildlife. And on the subject of wildlife, so it was interesting hearing you talking about the State of Nature report, and that did show such depressing um, declines of, of species across the UK. And obviously you've, you've seen some of this in your area uh, and the various reasons for it. What would you do then if, if you were in charge? And, you, and obviously what would you do, you and your fellow farmers? Is there a plan that you would change things or do things in a different way? Yeah, I mean, I think, like you said, we all, we all love to see the wildlife that we've got on our farms. I think we'd love to see it improved and strengthened. In reality, I think... Some of the, the harshest criticism of, of the conservation movement comes from agriculture because we're seeing conservation projects and techniques being used on our land. Uh, the reduction in stocking, for example, is the result of financial incentives to reduce stocking. We've been paid to take the stock off the land. And despite that, we see the onward march of millennia. Um, you know, as you take more and more animals off the mountain, there's just more and more purple-headed moorgrass choking out all the other species. Um, there are far less wheat years, you know, there are no skylarks anymore. Um, these are complaints that I think farmers come up with very often, and we see them going hand in hand with that reduced interaction with the landscape. So, um, that's interesting, that point about millennia. Um, for the listeners' benefit, it, it's, uh, it's, it's purple-headed moorgrass, you called it, yeah? It, yeah. It's quite, I live in the Brecon Beacons, it's quite pervasive across the tops of the hills and on the plateaus. Why does that take over then? With, with the reduction in grades, do, do sheep and cattle graze millennia? Uh, cattle certainly do. Um, there, there's some debate about whether sheep do as well. I think sheep, from our experience at home, sheep certainly graze millennia when the millennia is young and tender enough because it's quite a coarse grass. Um, 
cattle do, horses do. But I think the point is, if you haven't got enough grazing pressure for them to graze it while it's young, then it grows, it dries, it falls over, more grows and dries through that, and that falls over, and it, it does just choke out everything else. It stops you having that, that stratified flora that you get on a more grazed hillside, where you get tall heathers, short bilberries, some young heather somewhere else, enough space for ground nesting birds, space for animals to graze, space for animals to hide, some thickets here and there. It, it just it becomes a blanket and it becomes a blanket that becomes very monoculture. It's very interesting talking to you. I've, I've talked to lots of upland conservationists and they have a similar approach that that diversified upland herbage and vegetation is exactly what, what they're looking for. So there's obviously quite a big overlap between what you're saying and what a lot of conservationists are saying. It's just how you get there is perhaps the, it's the different approaches that, that would cause friction or, or some sort some disagreement. Yeah, well, like I think want the same outcomes. I think you're right, and I think you know the question you asked earlier about what what farmers would want to do about it. I think there are solutions within agriculture to a lot of this, and I think that there are there are techniques that agriculture has used over centuries. The Havada Hendra system is a fantastic one. I where to ask you in, about that? Yes, Havada yeah. in Welsh is, is like summer summer house summer grazing. Is that right? Summer, summer grazing, summer yeah. Grazing. And, and Hendra is winter. Uh, uh, yeah, well, Hendra literally means old town. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> so it's where you keep the animals in near the old town over winter right. um, and then move them up to, to the Havod, the place of summer, um, over the summer. Um, and I think it's been portrayed wrongly uh, in a number of places, not, not least of which in, in George Monbiot's book, Feral, where it's been seen as a reflection of, of the sort of more English version of Imbai land, where you send them out to the hill, um, which is just behind your house over the summer, and then you bring them into the paddocks and the fields around the house in winter. Um, what we're talking about is a far bigger shift in, in livestock numbers, thousands of animals moving from lowland areas over tens of miles to upland areas to intensively graze for a few months of the year and then to be substantially taken away again to spend the winter further down, um, where you've got a far bigger contrast in grazing patterns and grazing pressures at different points of year so that you can for example, beat the millennia down when it's growing first and then give the other species time to recover as you remove the stock later on in the autumn. Um, and I think there are, there are patterns like that that we've seen historically maintained the biodiversity that we had. And it's with the decline of those sorts of uh, traditional agricultural management techniques that we see some of the declines in biodiversity starting, really. I mean, would, realistically, would Havodahendra, is it? Is it something farmers would be wanting to, to, to start up again? Would it be commercially viable? Uh, it's, it's not that different to what we're doing at the moment. Um, it, it's just an extension of it because most hill farms um, are yearlings for the moment. So last year's ewe lambs that will become next year's breeding stock, um, they're going to spend the winter on the lowlands. They go down to either dairy farms or farms that for some other reason don't have livestock over the winter where they've got better grasses, deeper soils, softer grasses, because uh, year-old sheep have got far worse teeth because they're still growing their teeth. Um, so we already send our sheep down country for the winter. Um, the only bit of it that we don't have in that system at the moment is having animals from down country coming up for the summer. Um, so it's, I think it's an extension of what we're already doing. There are still reflections of that traditional practice in current agricultural practice. Um, and it's recognising that and recognising that maybe what we should be doing is working more closely together. But there are, there are issues to do with, with agricultural regulations and with the speed at which we now need to finish livestock so they can you, go to be eaten. What, um, that needs to be addressed for that as well. You back. Yeah, so it's regulations and, and current um, subsidy payments as well. Is that sort of 
constraining you or, or what, what stops you from doing, doing this sort of ideal situation? Um, I think well, there are a couple of issues. Um, there's the fact that people are very used to what they do, <laughs> um, which means that they'll, yes. they'll keep doing it unless incentivized to do otherwise. Um, the power of the supermarkets over well, particularly the livestock sector means that there's now a drive to get every animal as big as possible as quickly as possible. Um, and hill grazing doesn't really meet that aim. If we were looking for slower meat, if we were looking for meat with less inputs, um, if we were looking for a, a sort of meat that we felt was more ecologically sensitive, I think it's exactly the sort of thing we should be doing. Um, and the sort of extensive agriculture that we've got up here in the uplands is far more environmentally and ecologically sensitive than the more intensive agriculture that you see in other parts of the world, certainly, but even in other parts of the UK. Okay, so there's the potentially, um, can you see a situation where you can sit down with conservationists and talk about, they can talk about rewilding and you can talk about how your practices can, agricultural practices can enhance the natural landscape and increase biodiversity? Could you see that happening at this stage or do you think that there's too, too big a gap between the two sides at the moment? Um. Personally, I think that the term rewilding gets in the way of that conversation. Um, so it's, I it's think the that using itself. the term, yeah. yeah, using the term rewilding, because um, if, if you look at the, the popular sort of media image of rewilding, you are talking about a Pleistocene revival. You are talking about keystone species reintroductions. You are talking about large areas of landscape that are going to be reforested without any people in them. And having that as, as the totem, you know, especially with, with that big scary wolf up there, which I don't think is a reality for upland whales, to be honest. But, but having that there just stops that constructive conversation. I think we need to differentiate between conversations about conservation and conversations about rewilding. I'm not as convinced that there's room for a conversation about rewilding when what we need to be having is a far more nuanced and sensitive conversation about biodiversity conservation. Rewilding portrays itself as being... Um, a way of reconnecting people with nature. And I'm not as convinced. I mean, the question I'd ask of it is which people and which nature? Because certainly if you're disconnecting agriculture from nature, if you're disconnecting communities that are deeply rooted in their interaction with landscape from that landscape around them and from their continued physical interaction with it, aren't you actually disconnecting people with nature in order to reconnect other people with a different nature? Um, there's, sort of, there's a value judgment here being put about which vision is allowed dominance in the countryside, which vision is allowed dominance in a landscape, despite the fact that there's a settled and established population who should, as far as I'm concerned, have a very real say and a very real stake in that. There's definitely becoming a focus... Um, on creating a narrative of agricultural decline, sort of, of almost a, a, a passive nature to rewilding, where it's moving into spaces that agriculture is abandoning. So it's an answer as agriculture progresses its, its downhill movement and starts abandoning the uplands um, due to the economic pressures placed upon it, that rewilding is just filling a void. It's not actively pushing anyone away. It's just doing something else with land that otherwise would become barren in terms of biodiversity and economically as well. Um, and I don't think that's a particularly accurate narrative. 
I think that various schemes over the last 20 years have acted um, as, a, as a pushing force on agriculture, pushing agriculture out of the uplands, making upland agriculture less productive, making upland agriculture less capable of fulfilling the economic needs of the farmers that, that are there without public subsidy. Um, agriculture, as far as I'm concerned, isn't in decline. Agriculture has been put in a very specific um, economic framework by the pressures placed upon it. And I don't think it's a very accurate narrative to then say that you're just, you're just filling a space that agriculture is leaving. I think that we need to realise that what's happening is agriculture is being pushed out by the very, very same forces that are then proposing rewilding as an alternative. So what are, what are these forces then? That, that, what are these pressures? Is it more like economic forces or, or policy forces? That... I, I think definitely policy forces, which, which are substantially conservation-driven, specifically the ones to, to reduce stocking levels. Are, they, um, are these how um, subsidies are paid? By virtue of payments, it changes behaviour? Yeah, certainly. And I think um, because of the way that agricultural subsidies have been created in the past, reducing your stocking level is actually a really easy thing to pay people for. It makes a very tidy spreadsheet and quite a neat calculation. Because if you have a number of sheep that you're removing from a farm, those sheep have a set economic value and you can compensate the farmer for not having those sheep anymore. But it's, I think it's been rather a blunt and oversimplistic tool. And I think that by doing that, it's made the farms that that's happened to less viable because the needs of the whole unit, the needs of other parcels of land where the stocking isn't reduced, the needs to make um, hay at different times of year, the needs of biodiversity in hay meadows and in some of their streamside corridors have been ignored for the sake of prioritising destocking on upland areas. Uh, as far as I can see, just because of the ease of the calculation, um, it just hasn't been data-driven enough. It hasn't involved enough research. The effects of doing it haven't been measured. So we don't really know whether in every instance it's been positive. And I think most farmers would begin to suggest that that's certainly not the case. Um, but at the same time, it makes you less agriculturally viable by doing that because we haven't considered the needs of the whole farm, um, either ecologically or uh, economically. And I think the multiplier is lost as well because the less actively you farm, the less work you put into farming, uh, the less that money then cascades out into the wider rural economy. You know, every uh, Welsh farm, for, for according to figures from uh, NFU Cymru, produces £7.40 as an economic multiplier for every pound of public subsidy it, it receives. Uh, the less work you do, that £7.40 is going to reduce because you're not paying out for buying in services, for buying in equipment, for buying in labour. You know, I think that we've got a far broader conversation to be had before we risk losing what we've still got because I think there could be a very sustainable and, and a very ecologically friendly agricultural revival in the uplands, if only we were brave enough to do that. Um, and I think that the rewilding conversation is distracting us from that, rather. You could call it re-farming. Uh... Oh, possibly, yeah. <laughs> and we left it there for now, but there's plenty more to say on this issue. And later in this series of podcasts, I'll be talking to someone from Rewilding Britain to hear their side of the story. For now, I'd like to say a big thank you to Daffith for his thoughts on, on the issue and on farming. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share about rewilding, please email me at editor at and your email may appear in the magazine or in a later podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find more by searching for BBC Countryfile magazine on iTunes or Acast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>